HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This is Bernie Lubbers, the global brand ambassador for whiskeys for Heaven Hill Distillery out of Bardstown in Louisville, Kentucky. And you're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Borders seem to be all over the news lately. You've got trade wars, Brexit, and of course, Trump's wall. This week on Meet and 3, we're exploring how borders are created and blurred in the world of food. We try to focus a lot on the fact that they are chefs by nature, uh, that the refugee thing is just a status for them. And after the Soviet space ended, I don't think there was much research. It was all considered just Soviet food or Russian food. And I don't think it gives a lot of those cultures credit. Tune in to this week's Meet and 3 on Heritage Radio Network. That's meet plus sign T-H-R-E-E. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. So you don't shun the devil with your rock and roll load. Knows that country music's gonna save your soul. The devil runs his groove in that rhythm and blues that's him. It's gonna get you some in the end. Welcome back to the Speakeasy. I'm Souther Teague. My co-host Damon Bolte is out gallivanting the West Coast. He's in San Francisco still. We'd love to have you back, Damon. Come on back to New York City. Uh, I'm sure he's having a great time out there. I can't fault him for being somewhere gorgeous and doing fun things. Um, I want to start with a couple of things that I've been talking about for the past few weeks. Uh, I want to continue the conversation. Um, one of our own needs our help. Uh, a good friend of mine and good friend to the bar community, Christopher Reed, uh, works at Bar Goto. Uh, I've said it a thousand times. It's my favorite bar in New York City. Um, was diagnosed uh, last May uh, with ALS, uh, which is uh, you know slowly basically robbing him of his ability to do his job, uh, and eventually it'll rob him of his dignity and, and then his life. And we're all you know really upset about the notion, uh, but he's handling it like a champ. Uh, he's working for as long as he can. But in the meantime, we've started a GoFundMe, so you can go to uh, GoFundMe and search for Christopher Reed. Uh, you'll find his page. We're trying to raise two hundred fifty thousand dollars so that he can. Uh, so that when uh, when he can't work anymore, which is uh, possibly going to be soon, uh, he'll be taken care of until uh, until uh, everything comes to a head. Uh, so go take care of Christopher Reed. He's uh, been in the bar community for a long time. And we actually had a, uh, a fundraiser for him just the other night at uh, Max Fish here in New York City. A bunch of bars that he's worked at in the past uh, and uh, uh, all the way up to now uh, got behind the bar at Max Fish and raised money. So people from Flatiron Lounge, Pegu Club, uh, uh, Bar Goto, uh, all jump behind the bar to raise money for Chris because he's such a great guy so go check out his gofundme page and donate what you can or at least spread the word so that people can donate and help chris out um 
Another thing that I've been talking about recently is uh, Bar Methods. Um, it's a yearly uh, clinic uh, that we do for, it's, it's sort of like 101 uh, in culinary, but for bar, right? So we teach classes that are literally a class about stirring, a class about shaking, a class about ice production. Um, really the basic stuff to get your bar program uh, off the ground, uh, you know, so if you're new to the field or, uh, you know, we find that a lot of our uh, students that come to take the class are actually bar managers who come to us to learn how to teach these things to their uh, employees. Uh, so it's great for kind of every every level, but it's certainly built for the 101. Uh, applications are open. It's barmethods.com. Uh, the New York City session is August 25th to 28th. Uh, and you get a lot of stuff included in that. Um, you stay at the Park South Hotel for three night, uh, for three days. I think it's two nights and three days. Um, it's uh, breakfast, lunch, and dinner are provided. There are uh, branded parties. Uh, there's obviously the lectures that you get to go to. Um, and it's a pretty low cost because uh, we get the sponsors, uh, the brand sponsors, to pay for most of the cost. Uh, so I believe it's $200 uh, this year for, for the whole thing. So it's, a, it's completely worth it, and it's a great program. And I've been a part of it for the past three years, so you should check that out. Um, today we're having uh, episode number 324, I believe. Um, I'm going to start counting them on the air starting today. We're starting at 324. Uh, today, episode 324 in the studio, I've got Shannon Mustafer, uh, who has just released her book yesterday. It's called Tiki Modern Tropical Cocktails, uh, and it's gorgeous. Welcome to the studio, Shannon. Welcome back to the studio. Always a pleasure to be here at Heritage Radio. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, you've been on our show before, uh, but you've been on several shows here at Heritage Radio. That's pretty cool. I didn't realize that until today. Um, and, and I hope this is your favorite. Well, you know, I, I hate to play favorites, but I have to admit, <laughs> it's it's great to be here. Listen, do you drink on the other shows? Because we drink on this show. Well, I did drink with Korsha Williams on Hungry Society, but this is the place where, you know, the bottles get popped for sure. Right on. Well, we're glad to have you in the studio and talk about lots of things. going to talk about... Uh, um, what you've been up to in the past. We'll talk about, obviously, your book, and then we're going to talk about what you've what you pl- got planned for the future. Um, but you were telling me off the air something I didn't know about you at all. You used to be a, a visual artist, uh, large format paintings. Uh, how did you get into and out of that? Or do you still do it? So it's something I don't talk about very much of late, but starting at age four or five, I've always been fascinated with things that I could do with my hands. I always had sketchbooks. I would spend time making tie-dye cloth and tied paper. I would build Legos and everything visual, always fascinating from an early age. I started taking art classes when I was six or seven. Wow. And Early there, cultivation of this fascination. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I like to think that I'm pretty natural at everything that I pick up and I do look back on my time making art as really foundational to how I develop my point of view on the world and develop my passion for creativity and for hard work and sustained focus. And we'll talk a little bit more about how that plays into my career and my book. But uh, to wrap it all up for you, I studied visual art and art history at Rhode Island School of Design, had a studio for four years following graduation. The initial plan all, was... Did you stay in Rhode Island for that four years? I stayed in Rhode Island for a total of a, 10 years. Wow. I took some time off between freshman and sophomore year and the whole time again doing really intensive study on my own. I uh, looked at Gauguin and Degas and I was a little bit of a throwback type of artist in that 
I would make studies in black and white and color, not, you know, intending to copy the style of those artists, but to really deeply digest what made them famous or rather uh, how they gain respect for their mastery of handling of materials for narrative and everything that we cherish about artists of, you know, that type. Let's dive into the technique as well. You know, if you're gonna if you're gonna rotate through all the all those styles that you just mentioned, it's it's you're 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 honing technique and probably also defining which one you'd like to pursue the most, right? Sure. I mean, in the end, I spent a lot of time making abstract work and eventually came back to the figure. I was a huge comic book fanatic in middle school and high school and thought that that was what I would initially do, I got to RISD and I didn't like the illustration department building. Sorry, guys. I wanted to work on a a bigger scale and comic books seemed too small for me. And I did dabble in printmaking for some time, but got to the place where I realized I just love direct contact with materials. Sure. And that's how I fell in love with painting. I thought I would pursue a career in New York when I moved here about 12 years ago. But, you know, I saw what was going on in the art market at the time. And some of you may be familiar with this. In the early 2000s, there was an obsession with youth. And we started to see artists having retrospectives at the age of 30 or winning author grants around that time. And I don't begrudge anyone being able to achieve something on that level but it bred in me a type of cynicism. Mm. Well, I saw people becoming disposable in the industry, started to look more like pop music industry. Sure. And I wanted a more sustainable and, and meaningful career than what it looked like my peers were getting into. So there are exceptions to every rule, and I continue to have a lot of respect and admiration for people who practice art. I wanted something that would allow me to interact more directly with my audience as opposed to having work sitting in storage and in warehouses and being exhibited in spaces that weren't terribly inclusive relative to the world of hospitality and, and restaurants. So you, ha- you, you had a desire to make things with your hands and you had a desire to interact with your audience. Sounds like bartending is the perfect fit. <laughs> it took me a while to get there, but this is where I found myself. Absolutely. And how long have you been now bartending in New York City? It's been six years. Outstanding. A relatively brief time in the, in the span of working behind the stick. But again, as with my art practice, I threw myself fully in. And I won't reveal my secrets as to <laughs> you know, how I got to be to where I am. But it involved a great deal of obsession and working at home and watching videos online and how Drinking. other people there is a lot of that to accompany <laughs> my studies that's the research i love the research you have to know the materials that's right yes uh well that's great i mean that, frankly it doesn't sound like it's a real secret it sounds like it's a dedication to a craft um that that you know propelled you to where you are today um so you started bartending here in new york city you were then getting the those two things uh, in you that needed to be fed you were getting to make things with your hands and, and interact with an audience how were those first experiences for you how was it when you first pushed a drink across the bar to a guest that you felt you had created you were proud of how was that revelatory I've always been proud of 
being behind a bar, even when I, I started off quite humbly as a bartender in a wine bar. Sure. For me, creating a welcoming atmosphere, seeing how much people were enjoying spending their time there with me or with their friends, mixing people together, as they say, you know, bartenders don't just mix drinks, they mix people. Indeed. And uh, I've always felt proud of that experience. And I remember my last shift there. It's a tiny spot in Clinton Hill, no longer there, called Bar Alavino. 15 seats, max capacity, 30 people. That room was packed to the gills and resulted in me being doused in champagne, Indy 500 style. And <laughs> I was prepared. I had a couple layers on. I was like, I know that this shirt is coming up at some point. Um, but that being said, in terms of a cocktail that helped me to see that I felt like I had a personal style and a signature and nothing groundbreaking when I look back on it, but it was a, a riff on Black Manhattan made with Averna and Allspice Dram. I utilize rum as well as rye. I was a huge Smith & Cross fan at the time and a relative novice didn't realize that the proof was higher and that's why I really love those old fashions with Smith & Cross. This is at Do or Dine. Again, oh, no yeah. longer there. And I forgot you worked at Do or Dine. That was the first time in the first couple of weeks were not so good. I was I was terrible. <laughs> Caused a lot of stress to my manager, but they bore with me. They they saw how badly I wanted to improve and they put that drink on the menu and I felt really proud. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great feeling, right? You get to make something you get to, I, I, you know, remember in my youthful career and behind the bar anyway, same when I was a chef, I was a chef before that, but to make that thing and put it out to someone and see them delight in it and enjoy it and tell them maybe a story about why you made it. Like those are the things that hooked me into being behind a bar. You know, I was in the kitchen and things go out through the double doors and I don't know what happens out there. And then when I got behind the bar, I'm part of the experience. So that's what really put its hooks into me. Uh, and made me want to stay behind the bar. Uh, I, yeah, do or dine. That place was um, very noteworthy for its uh, relatively short-lived time. Um, you guys were doing some fun cocktails. Uh, you were doing sphere, spherification over there. Um, I, I lived not far away from there at that at that at the time they were there. I lived most of my time here in the East Village in the Lower East Side of New York, but I happened to live over in, in Bushwick for about four years, and I was not too far away right when they were around. The, the, the foie gras-filled donut, like that place was cutting edge for its, for its short life. It was wild and definitely ahead of its time, which unfortunately contributed to some of the challenges they faced in terms of retaining a clientele. Yeah. This was eight years ago in Bed-Stuy, and... Yeah. There were next to no restaurants in the vicinity and, you know, really young clientele in the area who wanted... Not to mention young ownership, a young, young team, really. Yeah, they were young, but I, I think that youth contributed to how bold and daring their approach was, not only to the food, but to the atmosphere, the vibe, the music, and really eclectic bunch. Yeah, I think that place probably spoke to you personally because it was, it was very, like, artistically driven. The, the space itself, uh, even that backyard that they built with all the graffiti that they put in and uh, and, and like kind of mural mural, mural look back there. Um, and again, yeah, that youthful boldness, I think, was what, what made that place really appealing to me. I lived, I don't know, not that far away, but I went there pretty frequently. 
I spent a lot of money there. <laughs> you spent time there. You made money there, and you spent your money there. Indeed. Yeah. Uh, that's great, though. Um, so uh, moving forward from there, flash forward a little bit. Now you, uh, you run the program at uh, uh, Gladys, uh, which is here in Brooklyn. Two locations now, right? At this juncture, one. Oh. We had our second location open up around this time last year. Mm-hmm. We've had a change in ownership. Uh-huh. One of the partners that joined the company is now the sole owner and is reconcepting the space to reopen in about a month. So you still hold the space? You're just going to change the concept? We're going to change the concept. Okay, cool. Can yeah. you talk about it or you want to hold your, hold your tongue? I'm not the best one to speak to it, but okay. I can divulge that it will involve a, a Japanese element, which I think is going to be great. For those of you who don't know, that location is in Prospect Lefferts Garden. Mm-hmm which is heavily influenced by Caribbean cuisine, but at this juncture doesn't have an offering like the one that the owner is looking at putting out there, and right. we'll see how the neighborhood responds. Outstanding. Uh, and you want to talk about Gladys a little bit in general? No. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Gladys yeah. Caribbean opened five years ago. In fact, April 4th will be our anniversary. Oh, and nice. It initially started as a new American concept. The founder, Michael Jacober, met his partners a few years prior at Franny's. And their inspiration for the initial Gladys was wood fire as a central cooking method, local ingredients. You have to keep in mind that the school of thought back then was still heavily influenced by what we called new Brooklyn cuisine. So that was... Frankie Spontino and later Prime Meats and Rucola, those, those styles of restaurants are really influential in the, sh- the chef's approach to that cuisine. Again, you know, this was six years ago when they opened that, and it was a little ahead of its time for Crown Heights, which is a, a pretty uh, popular neighborhood with people who are younger and newer to the city. And we found out popular that neighborhood read affordable. <laughs> Crown Heights is an affordable neighborhood in New York City. Depends on who you ask, and we'll see how long that lasts. But you know, I digress a little bit. It was ahead of its time. The price point was a little too high for the neighborhood, and I joined that team six months into that project, and within four months, I was approached to help reconcept it into a Caribbean restaurant. Mm-hmm. And I'd been bartending for about two years prior to that and was just beginning to get to a point where I was doing it full time. I'd never worked extensively with Rome. And I had a month to figure out this program and a back bar of 50 pours. Crash course, but I fell in love. I tasted something like 200 or 250 bottles to narrow it down to what I wanted to be a selection that would reflect the best of what was available in the market at the time with the focus on traditional styles of Caribbean rum and traditional labels that our clientele would recognize either from the travel suit the Caribbean or through their experience having come from the Caribbean. There were a few brands that didn't quite fit that criterion, but it was really important to me to show the diversity of a category that people didn't know very well, was very underrated, and uh, I, I 
was pleasantly surprised by the range of flavors and profiles and what rum could offer to a guest. I mean, the mo- I, you know, I, I, I think rum is the most extensive category available. There, the variances are so wide and so uh, great, and, and there's no singular governing body that says what's what. I, like, rum is the, uh, for me, it's the most complex and, and, and challenging I love knowing that a place like yours is curating it for me. You know what I mean? When I'm walking in the door, it's curated. I love going to places sometimes that are show of strength, right? We're a whiskey bar. We have all the whiskeys. But I really love going to a place that's like, we're a whiskey bar. We've curated the whiskeys for you. Um, You come in and this is the ones we think you should try, right? So it's not so intimidating. I get that my own bar, Mori Margo, is show of strength on a morrow, but it's because I'm supposed to have them all, and they're all different. Um, But I, I do like the curated notion so that it takes a little bit of the burden off the guest which i think is one of the fundamentals of you know what service is making it easier and better for for hospitality um which i'd love to talk to you more about fundamentals when we come right back so let's take a break and let's see if bernie lovers wants to yell at us we'll be right back I'm Souther Teague from the Speakeasy here on Heritage Radio Network. Today I'm joined by Bernie Lubbers. Bernie's going to talk to me a little bit about Heritage Whiskeys. I work for a Heaven Hill distillery out of Bardstown, Kentucky, and Louisville, Kentucky. And we're, we're interesting for many reasons. One is we're, we're, we're family-owned by the same family that started us in 1935. And when our family uh, started it, they owned little department stores around Kentucky. Our, our owners say that they didn't know a barrel from a box. But um, they've learned that along the way, and our second-generation uh, owner and president, Max Shapira, is uh, truly a kingpin of the industry, and he's as genuine, as nice, and authentic as you can be. Uh, but he, I mean, he drives a Buick. I mean, come on. He owns a distillery, he drives a Buick. Nothing against Buicks. I love Buicks. But, you know, he's just, he loves, he says he's never worked a day in his life. He works six days a week. He, he, he's never where he's the first one in the office, last one to leave, and he loves the industry, loves the business, and he's very respected within the industry and makes heritage brands like Evan Williams, Elijah Craig, uh, Larceny Bourbon, Old Fitzgerald, uh, Rittenhouse Rye, Mellow Corn, Henry McKenna, all these brands that most most other distilleries would have just cut away because, you know, they're they're owned by Wall Street and stockholders, so they got to push a number and push a number and drive those sales up, you know. But we, we, we have these heritage brands that we keep, and I believe that we're like the Library of Congress of old whiskey brands like Rittenhouse Rye, Pikesville Rye, Mellow Corn, and J.W. Dan, J.T.S. Brown, and things that, you know, they're way – anybody else would have just sold these off or just gotten rid of them. But we are the placeholders for these brands at Heaven Hill Distillery. And you can learn more about us at HeavenHillDistillery.com. Cultivating and curating delicious whiskeys since 1935. Thanks, Bernie. Thank you, son. Man, I love talking to that guy. Bernie Lubbers is just a charmer. Uh, if you get the chance to go and see him uh, talk about whiskey, he also performs. Uh, he does, uh, he's got one of his uh, classes that he teaches, but he plays his guitar while he teaches, so he's... Uh, it reminds me of like Steve Martin with his banjo on stage, you know, doing comedy and singing songs at the same time. But he's teaching you about bourbon while doing comedy and singing songs at the same time. He's a challenging and interesting character to hang around. Uh, we are back with Shannon Mustafer in the studio here at Speakeasy, episode number 324. Wow, we're getting up there. Um, and we were just starting to talk about the fundamentals of bartending and how I think you and I both agree that they... Uh, um, they're extremely important, and I think uh, lately I look around and I wonder if they're being maybe overlooked 
you know, I think um, younger bartenders are coming in and gunning hard, and they're they're maybe skipping the fundamentals. What do you what are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, I think there is a couple factors at play there. Chief among them is we've seen a resurgence of a return to classic pre-prohibition era cocktails here in New York for 15 going on 20 years, depending on when you want to start counting, be it Flatiron Lounge, Mm -hmm. later Pegu Club, PDT, Angel Share. And we've had access to those bars long enough that I believe that we've begun to take for granted our level of collective expertise and knowledge around cocktails. Agreed. From there, everyone wants to have an opportunity to make their mark, and I think this is when people begin to focus on their style or their original recipes or take on classics, which is valid. And, you know, sometimes I see it go a little too far insofar as it becomes more insular and almost navel gazy. Yeah, it becomes more about themselves than about the guests in front of them. I, well, you, know, you said it for me, right? I, I didn't want to go there, but bartenders wanting to impress the industry and wanting to do things that will get them attention within the industry, but we're here to serve the public. And I believe that when you focus on serving your guest the way people perceive you and the accolades, it's icing on a cake. Correct. Now, if you derive your satisfaction from being able to give a guest a notable experience, or, you know, an experience that they want, be it, I want a decent cocktail, I want a nice atmosphere, I want to feel welcome, I want to be left alone. I believe that that's our job to focus on that and everything else follows. So the spirit knowledge, the cocktail knowledge, the technique are all in support of being able to execute that primary function, which is to be a host. Yeah, couldn't agree more. I taught um, ice carving at the New England Culinary Institute, you know, 300-pound blocks of ice that we would carve into things for buffet tables, etc. But it was an elective class, so students had to sign up to be able to take it, and when they signed up, I checked their grades in their other classes. And my standard uh, sort of response to the ones who weren't doing well enough in the other classes to come and take my elective class was, I don't have a good equivalent in, a, in our world, but I would say to them, if you can't cook rice, you can't carve ice. You know, I feel like a lot of people are getting to a place where they don't know, and I don't want to, <laughs> excuse me, I don't want to take away from anybody um, uh, and what they're doing or what they're trying to do, but it does bother me when I see bartenders out there that um, don't have a good grip on classic cocktails, and yet they're trying to create, you know, modern cocktails. And that's the, that's the equivalent. Can't cook rice, can't carve ice. But I, I wholeheartedly agree with your statement. I saw it all the time in art school. Sure. In, in the art history space, there were students that didn't know who Degas was. They didn't know who Velasquez was. And here we are in the painting department. And my question became, well, what are you looking at and why are you here? Right. Are you here to learn from the canon and show respect to the canon and add to the canon? Or are you here just to be cool? Which can work on some level and it can take you places. But 
I saw a But couple, I don't feel like it's got longevity. Well, hence what I was talking about earlier regarding right, sort of how pop careers... pop culture nature. That was a really well put. Again, we'll look back and decide what the merits of that development is or was. I, I always felt that classmates that I, I met who showed no interest in history were shortchanging themselves and depriving themselves of opportunities to learn things that they could apply to you know, what they wanted to show and what they wanted to do. And the same is true for bartenders today. I, I, I go into a lot of spaces where I can't get a basic cocktail. And I get the impression that the staff are only learning the cocktails on the menu in their space. Mm-hmm. And it's great to know what you're serving, but do you know why? Right. Do you know what it's derived from? And well, I've, I've seen situations it, where it didn't look that way. Even the phrase you used just a moment ago, do you know the canon? Do you know where these things came from? Why they came like? It makes such perfect sense to me. Um, and I think that, you know, I want to, well, two things. I want to jump to this bottle that's on the table. You just poured us some rum. And let's talk about that real fast. What, what's in my glass? Because this is something of yours, yeah? This is what I call my captain's blend. Captain's blend. Yes. As uh, Trader Vic said, what one rum can do, three can do better. I'm, I might have garbled No, that's that. it. That's, I know that's that. It. I've heard that before. And uh, he would call his cocktails rum rhapsodies. Yes. And would treat each element like a, a note or a bass line in a song. And he broke open the genre in terms of looking at it from a culinary point of view and a flavor point of view. And that's how Tiki began to differentiate itself from other forms of cocktails. So with that in mind, I agree with him. And I have a tendency when I'm drinking for my own pleasure to put together my own blend. So this one is composed of double wooden pot still Guyana rum, which is known for being really rich and earthy. and It's a grounding element. There is a Bayesian rum. And for those of you familiar with Barbados' approach to rum making, there's a blend of pot and column and an emphasis on creating a really smooth, well-rounded, finessed style of rum. And to top it all off, I put some high ester pot still Jamaica rum, which historically has been added to other distillates to give extra aroma and, and funk. Ogo. Indeed. Yeah, ogo. I learned that word, I don't know, maybe two years ago. Again, rum, such a mystery to me still. Uh, well, oh. that's a fascination. Yeah, yeah. You can no. make it in 90 countries. As you mentioned earlier, there's no regulations. And some people have an issue with that. I think it's great. I mean, as long as you understand where it's coming from and how it's made, you can make an informed decision about what you want. And I, I don't think there's any right or wrong to it. Yeah, neither do I. You know, I, 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 it's funny that you would say that that's the fascination because I say all the time about Amari, the same thing. It's the, it's, the, it's the most fascinating and most frustrating part of the category is that there are no rules. Well, here's the thing. If you're the type of person that has to feel like you know everything, then I can see how that could be a problem for you. But some of us prefer to be in the dark sometimes. A little mystery to, like, in life. it a little bit, yes. Yeah, I have to ponder it myself. Um, so you, it's, uh, and thank you for bringing this. It smells delicious. I'm going to take a little sip real, real quick. Um, but you, uh, you started bartending, as you said, only about six years ago. 
then pretty quickly you took on this role at Gladys where you were going to have to curate this rum thing. You said you had to do a deep dive in a fast month to really curate a, 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 a bottle collection behind the bar there. And what a month it was. I'm certain. Do you remember any of it? <laughs> I recall many moments. I mean, it was a fantastic time in that I was learning something new. There was a big challenge in front of me. I knew yeah. there was going to be a, lot of learning a great deal of resistance to the program and the cocktails. And it was my first time heading up a bar. But this, that one decision to say yes to this, to, to helping change that program into a Caribbean-style uh, bar and restaurant, Wow, this is delicious. It's making my mouth water as I talk. Um, uh, to, to make that, that one decision really sort of now created a voice for you. And you're, you've been then defining and honing that voice ever since, right? Yeah, that's definitely I mean, the turning point. I, I believe that this is where the mature phase, or rather the foundation for the mature phase of my career, working in hospitality and in beverage, began. And I just want to back up a little bit regarding being asked to take this program. I was ready on some level for it. The restaurant had not had a bar director for six months and the program was a little adrift. We had great bartenders, people who'd worked at Middle Branch and in Sasha establishment. So it was good, but there was no focus, there was no vision. So I rewrote the program and called a meeting with the owner to show him what I wanted to do with Gladys as a new American restaurant. And it was really funny. I was like, I want to have a meeting with you. And he's like, I want to have a meeting with you as well. And so I go in thinking I'm going to show him this program. And then he tells me, well, I'm glad you want to remake the bar because I need you to remake it into a rum bar. <laughs> so you kind of already did some legwork. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I had my mindset on making changes. I just didn't know that that was the change he was going to ask me for. And what a fortuitous turn it's been because you now... You really are kind of one of the voices uh, uh, in the modern scene here in New York City that people look to when they want to talk about rum. You f is that you feel like the correct statement for me? Sounds good to me. I... <laughs> it sounds good, but do you feel it's true? It is true, and I'm really humble. I mean, do you get those late night texts like I do about people from all over the freaking place saying like, "Hey, I just found this tomorrow, and I don't know what to do with it." Like I get those all the time. Do you get that about rum? I get enough of those yeah. to keep me busy. They'll and keep coming. Yeah, I have to say. <laughs> you keep answering them, they'll keep coming. <laughs> why not? I mean, the thing that I really loved about putting together the program at Gladys was the opportunity to share with people the diversity of rum. And education for the staff and for our guests through our style of service was central to what we were doing. And in time, I had opportunities to lead seminars with brands that I took on work with. And we were here, the Ken Club Collective, myself and my colleagues, Daniel yep. DeLuna and Austin Hartman. And last year, we really made a point to focus in on offering as many seminars on the topic of Rome as we could out of pure passion and out of seeing that the industry, A, wasn't getting enough of that information and B, that bartenders were becoming very fascinated and there is an audience that we want to meet as well as to grow. Yeah, and the Cane, Com Cane Club Collective still going on? We've had a bit of a hiatus as we're all involved in various projects that yep, you're all busy. are starting to settle down. For myself, the book, for Austin, his recently opened bar, yep. Paradise Lounge, which is doing great. And awesome. For, He's going to be on the show soon. Oh, I love it. Um, yeah, so there's that, and Danny DeLuna has recently 
taken on a, a national role with a brand that she's been working with for a few years. So we're still in the game, still in communication and working on plans. Most of those will come to fruition this year around the New York Rum Fest, which is right. in June, right mm-hmm. on the heels of BCB. Yeah, cool. Well, we look forward to hearing more about what's going on with the collective. Reach out to us and make sure we know, and we'll mention it on the air. Um, so, uh, all this deep dive into rum, and then I have always thought that rum and brandies had some similarities. Uh, am I crazy for thinking that? No, not at all. And I didn't touch on this earlier, but one of the things that I found really fascinating about rum is it has its roots in global culture, and it shows diversity by virtue of the fact that it can be produced in so many countries. And I look back on my experience working with wine, and it helped me to organize or wrap my head around how to think about rum how to group it in the categories according to production methods, flavor profiles, and... And even terroir, where it's from, right? Well, terroir can have an impact. Again, there's a debate around that. Mm. It's more evident in rums that are made from fresh cane juice, but that, you know, it's more about the distillation, aging, and maturation in terms of whether that's going to come through in the final product. might be a conversation for... Another podcast, but more critically... There's so much information. We could have an entire podcast that's devoted to just rum and run it for years. Well, hint, hint, publishers, <laughs> that could be a book. But we'll, we'll come back to that later. But, you know, the, the, the connection between culture and wine and cuisine mm. and the values and how people like to spend time together has an impact on how these products are made... The same is true for rum, and the same can be said for brandies or eau de vies, in that they're among the first spirits that we consumed. And for those of you who are a little less familiar with the category, eau de vie is a spirit that's based on fruit. That could be apricots, apples, grapes. When we get into grapes, we're talking about grappa, when we talk about brandy, we're discussing aged grape distillates. And based on its connection to wine growing culture and agriculture in general, you see a lot of diversity in the spirit. You see styles all over the map. And it makes it a fascinating thing to explore in that at this juncture, a lot of the the public and consumers and bar industry are familiar with cognac, apple brandy, applejack. But there's so much in between. Sure. And that's part of what attracted me to working with Bertu, where I do sales, I do education here in New York. I wanted to crack into a category where I would learn and where I have an opportunity to help people learn as well, in addition to adding some dignity to a category that has not had a great reputation in the U.S., but we're seeing a resurgence of quality come back onto the market and opportunities to give people a new experience in cocktails. Yeah, outstanding. And and it's our friend Jeff Bell, who's uh, part of the, the leadership team over there at Bertu. 
He's one of our master blenders, yep. as is Thomas Pasuzic, who is wine director at the Nomad yep. and a winemaker in his own right. Yeah. Uh, and you've been with those guys for how long now? Since September. And it's, it's really funny how it came about. I was in San Francisco around this time last year doing a presentation to pass off a brand from one importer to the next. And I met Jerry Ruvo, who is a big heavy hitter in spirits. He's on the board of Campari USA and has been involved in growing a number of brands for the last 25 or 30 years. We met, we clicked, and he suggested that I get in touch with Jim Maneshi, the founder of Bertu, which was in the process of organizing their launch. And I was tied up finishing the book and there were other things going on in the background. The same day that I was finishing the book, I was on a plane in California furiously typing to go meet the team and get onboarded. So it, it all worked out timing-wise. Yeah, this was in September. Outstanding. And it's a great product. And we've had Jeff on. We've talked about Bertu. Brandy, you can go find that episode if you want to hear more about Bertu. Uh, delicious juice. I have it on the bar to Mori Margo. Um, but now, so now we've gone through everything that's been happening. Let's talk real quick about what's happening this minute. Yesterday, your book launched. Tiki, Modern Tropical Cocktails, and it's gorgeous. And I think, based on this conversation that we've just had, it certainly ties together a lot of your passions. It's beautifully laid out, and I think you had some plenty to do with the artwork. Uh, it's got lots of uh, great rum information and recipes, um, and, and, and you're going to go on tour and, and, and get right in front of people with it. I'm coming out there like a hurricane, guys. Get ready. <laughs> Let's do it. And that this whole idea of... Disruption is a word that gets thrown around, maybe a little bit too much for its own good. But our idea, when Noah Fax and I were coming up with the concept for this book five years ago, was to make something that looked very different from what was on offer up until now. And that's expressed in the visuals, which makes a break from the all-too-typical cocktail in a bar environment type of photography that is utilized heavily. We wanted vignettes. We wanted images, not pictures of cocktails. So for those of you who have the book, you'll see that, yes, there are more traditional images, but there are vignettes and there's wild colors and crazy props yeah, I saw, I, I saw that several of the photos tell a story. You know, I think you're right. Uh, oftentimes cocktail photos are just, just that, a photo of a cocktail. But you've got props and things in the background that make me think of a story. And then I look over and I see the title of the, of the drink ties into what I'm seeing in the photo. And like, it all starts to make sense. But here's the thing. Like, it's tiki. And tiki has always been about storytelling and escapism and an evocation of another place. If you look at traditional tiki bars... The decor is all geared towards that. And we want to bring that element of fantasy and escapism to the physical tome while also proposing new directions for what a tiki or tropical cocktail could look like. As you go through the book, we do start with basic fundamental rum drinks and what I consider to be the mother sauces of tiki cocktails that I extrapolate upon in the, the latter chapters. We wanted to reference the history, but to update in the same spirit of fun and exploration, 
the types of ingredients that you could utilize in these recipes. So it's not just rum cocktails. We utilize virtually every spirit category, including newer arrivals to the U.S. market, including sochu, sake appears. There are various types of gins, brandies, piscos, and cognacs. And this because if that was available in the late 30s and 40s, I'm certain they would have made it into the cocktails. And we're in a different time. So I want that to be really clear in the recipes and also in the look of the book. Yeah, it's it's stunningly gorgeous. Um, you reached out to me sometime last fallish uh, for a, a jacket blurb, which I gave you one uh, because I read the book uh, back then, and it was you know it was, it was all flat packed. It wasn't a book yet; it was just sheets of paper. But um, now that I see it all as a package, um, it's gorgeous and beautiful photos of drinks. A couple beautiful photos of yourself in there making drinks. Um, yeah, I'd be happy to. I'm happy that I own this, and you, the listener, would be happy to own this book as well. Uh, get you through some delicious rum drinks. What uh, People ask me this all the time about my book. I'm going to ask you. Let's see. I'll put, put another book writer on the spot. What's your favorite drink in your book? I love all my children. <laughs> I do my best. I didn't ask to... you your favorite soap opera. <laughs> <laughs> I do my best not to call out a favorite, but if I'm going to pick three. Okay. All right. I'll take three. All right. Love it. The image on the cover. Gorgeous. Parasol. It's a very straightforward drink. It's a banana daiquiri with pineapple, but it's rooted in a story that's really personal to me. I was at my local King Thai bar in Crown Heights, around the corner from where I live, and a friend, Candace Ross, who owns Bryn's Jams, which was initially Stag Jams, mm, mm-hmm. comes in with a fresh bottle of her new banana jam. This was four years ago, if I, if I recall. And without thinking, I handed it to the bartender, gave him a speck. It was delicious. And I, I make variations on that drink constantly. And that's where I discovered that banana was my sweet spot. For cocktails, and I, I have to slap my hand when I'm going to make a new drink because it almost always is reaching for the banana ingredient. So that one is uh, everybody's got their favorite, though. You know, well, I Castro know. always reaches for pineapple. Castro puts a pineapple something in every drink he makes. Meanwhile, I'm like, okay, can we do something new? It's not just about you, anyway. So that cocktail <laughs> definitely up there um, for various reasons. And then there's a cocktail called the Strangers in Paradise, and this is. A Mai Tai riff that's based on mezcal and a rum split. And I won a competition, actually my first competition that I won, with a variation on that drink. And it opened my eyes to the fact that Tiki could incorporate other spirits that don't appear in the original canon. Heck yeah. Not to mention it was delicioso and still one of my favorite drinks. I I made that uh, three years ago. The last one... It's called One Love, and it's a play on a pina colada. First time I incorporated fat washing into a tropical cocktail, and again, it was in response to a challenge. I was asked to make a vodka cocktail. You saw the face. I saw your face, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <And laughs> son said, vodka cocktails are a celebration of the mixer. I wanted to avoid <laughs> it just being a, a way to add alcohol to the drink. Correct. And 
I knew it would need some more flavor. Meanwhile, there are all these flavored vodkas on the market, and the tension was between somehow leaving some of the flavor of the vodka intact or the the character of the spirit intact and you know giving it a little more character in light of where it was going to sit with the rest of the ingredients in the drink. So this one was a runaway hit at Gladys. I saw people order third rounds of this and we were just flying through it and again another eye opener Yeah, always a measure of a good drink, right? Yeah. Are they ordering two? Are they ordering a third? Another yeah. eye-opener for me. Yeah. And what was the name of that one again? One Love. It's one in the book. One Love. Yes. In the book. In the book, Tiki, Modern Tropical Cocktails by Shannon Mustafer, uh, available as of today, as of yesterday, uh, uh, on Amazon, I'm certain, and fine bookstores everywhere. So go get yourself a copy, correct? Indeed. And I'm happy to say, number one new release right now. Bang! In cocktails on Amazon. So I encourage everyone that has yet to order... To do it now. Do it now. And leave a review. Please leave a review. Review, better, review, review. Even better. Yeah, that's very helpful for us book uh, writers uh, to get uh, more and more content out there is that, uh, that, that, that they get reviewed by the consumer. Um, uh, where can people reach you if they want to ask you questions or see what you're doing? You got an Instagram you want to pimp out? Yes. Instagram, just my first and last name. I don't, I don't have time for aliases. <laughs> This Shannon Mustafer, that's me on Instagram. That's uh, M-U-S-T-I-P-H-E-R, Mustafer. A Shannon little bit Mustapher. of a mouthful, but uh, right. no one ever forgets me. So I don't think it, it has it, anything no. to do with your name. <laughs> it helps. <laughs> You're an unforgettable person. Uh, uh, so we can reach you on, the, uh, on your Instagram. We'll see, I'm sure, photos of your upcoming tour. You got any dates you want to list out real quick? Yes. So the first promotional event will take place at King Tai Bar. On the 29th, which is next Friday, which reminds me I need to get to work on making sure everything is together. We will be doing a menu takeover there for the duration of the week. So the wow. launch is on the 29th, and the bar is going to run five cocktails from the book until the following Friday, at which point I'm going to hop on a plane, head to the West Coast, and do the debut on April 7th at Trader Vic's Emeryville. Which is so flattering. That's outstanding. To, to be able to, to show my cocktails there for the first time in the West Coast at what I consider the birthplace of, you know, the Mai Tai. Really important cocktail to me. Of course. So yeah, that's like, where we're getting started. It's like getting to play Carnegie Hall for your first gig. <laughs> no, it's great. And, um, outstanding. I encourage anyone who wants to catch me in other cities, including L.A. at Tiki Oasis, both Arizona as well as San Diego at Lost Lake and, and so on to go to my website, which is my first and last name dot com, and you'll see all the dates for events. There will be additions, but at this juncture I'm visiting twelve cities and and more to come. Outstanding. So you can uh, check out all that stuff uh, uh, as she just listed. I'll also post that stuff in the show notes. Uh, so you can just press a button and link up. Uh, and I'll post the same uh, information on uh, Speakeasy Podcast Instagram. And I'll probably flow that over to Creative Drunks Instagram as well. So uh, you can find Shannon and where she's going and what she's doing. And, and definitely go and grab her book real fast. Uh, it's, it's really awesome. Show up at one of her events and she'll sign it for you. Just like she's going to sign mine right now in the studio. Uh, I thank you so much for being here on Speakeasy. Uh, and we'll, uh, we'll see you guys later. Cheers, guys. Souther, always a pleasure. Cheers. Cheers. So you don't shun the devil with your rock and roll load. Knows that country music's gonna save you. Want more of the speakeasy? 
follow us and ask questions on Instagram at Speakeasy Podcast or on Twitter at Speakeasy Radio. You can find Damon at Damon Bolte, and you can find me at Creative Drunk on all platforms. Take a moment to write us a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite platform and give us a star rating, five if possible. If you're visiting New York City or a resident, stop by the studio and hang out with us during an episode. Reach out beforehand to make sure we'll be here. We'd love to see you. And please support our show by visiting heritageradionetwork.org and clicking on the beating heart to donate. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.